Some Hindu traditions have a meditation called Neti Neti, not this, not this. Through it, they practice the realization that they are none of the things they observe, none of the ideas or feelings, none of the sensations that arise are essentially us. The question then becomes, what is left for us to be? Perhaps there is no thing that is truly us. And perhaps that's okay. Perhaps, instead of seeking to identify, we're better off if we seek to embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like... I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 93 of Embrace the Void, where we plumb the depths as hard as we can plumb. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we have part two of my conversation with Dr. Keith Frankish on the nature of consciousness. Uh, hopefully you survived part one with some of your sanity intact, because uh, now we're going to pull back the curtain and give you all the easy answers, because that's totally how this works. Okay. With your hopes well and truly up, let's do this thing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's another, that's another major problem. That's something I want to talk to in a, about, about in a little bit here when we get back to the how does this apply in the real world kinds of questions. Yeah. So I think, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm agnostic, I guess, on the issue of intrinsicness. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that... Um, I'm much more interested in the private, ineffable, subjective mm-hmm. properties, I think. I think intrinsicness to me is one of those terms that, like, along with, like, intentionality and natural, where I feel like it's such a slippery concept. I'm not actually entirely clear always what's being pinned um, down I, there. I, um, I think you're right. There are different, there are different senses, which I didn't uh, try to distinguish. I agree. You're right. Um, and so the other one you mentioned was direct acquaintance. Um yeah. And and so the arguments you raised against direct acquaintance and privateness seem to be centered sort of largely around arguments against a robust sense of self, right? You're, it, so let me, let me put it this way. If I could give you an answer to the question of who the us is in the direct acquaintance conversation, would you then have any other arguments against direct acquaintance? I don't understand what the relation is supposed to be. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be a relation that is not mediated in any way. It's just uh, there is... There, there is the subject, whatever that is, and mm-hmm. there's the the, the, the the property, the the the, the quality, whatever we want to call it, feel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the relation between them is 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 immediate. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of process by which the subject becomes aware of the property. There's no mechanism in there. There's no perceptual apparatus 
or representational mm-hmm. mechanism. It's immediate. Now, I don't, I don't, I can't make sense of that. That seems to me like a sort of metaphorical description of something that we don't really understand. It's, I mean, I might say, you might, I could imagine you know, in the past when we didn't know anything about perception, I'm looking at the sky. How how do I know that the sky is blue? I just just I'm immediately acquainted with the blueness of the sky. I just I just open my eyes and there the blueness of the sky. It's immediate. Mm-hmm. I'm immediately aware of it. Now we know that's not true. There's all kinds of of, of, of physical processes that mediate that awareness, make it possible, but. In the past, before we knew this, somebody might say it's an immediate kind of acquaintance. The world just, I just open my eyes and the world is just immediately there. That's how it seems, I guess, for Qualia. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a similar thing. We just don't know why we are disposed to, um, uh, to, to think of it that way. And in the absence of that, we just say it's, it's kind of immediate. It's, but I don't see how it could really be immediate. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm not sure exactly what hangs on that. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that, like, my qualia are the product of a complex sort of representational system, as long as there is... Yeah, go ahead. Well, then if you say that, then I think you've, you you shouldn't say that, I think, because you've then okay. opened the door to the illusionist to get his foot in, you see, because uh, or her foot in, because the illusionist is going to say, well, if it's represent, if the qualia are represented, if they have to be represented, in order for them to be anything for me, to be in uh, part of my world, is it right? Mm-hmm. Then how do you know the representations are veridical? How do you know you're not representing? I, I may quality? not. They may all be non-veridical. I don't. I don't have any. Illusion. Well, but that's no, that, that, that's the that's weak illusionism, not strong illusionism. No, no, right? that's illusion. No. If, well, if the, well that's the, hold on a second because. I can say every single one, like like Descartes, right? I can say every single one of my experiences may be false, but the fact that I'm having the experiences can't be. That's oh. strong illusionism, as far as I can tell from what you've been saying. Uh, the, what we're what we're suggesting now is that my experience of qualia mm-hmm. may be illusory. That's the claim. Now, I'm certainly, as it were, I'm certainly think that I have quality, or I'm inclined to think that I have quality in, certain, in the same way that it, you know, I'm inclined to, to, to think that the two lines in a, in a Mulalaya illusion are a different length. I'm certainly, that, that's a datum, what I'm inclined to say and report and to tell myself, that's a datum. Mm-hmm. Um, so I certainly, the, the, the hetero phenomenon, what Daniel Dennett calls the hetero phenomenology, that's mm-hmm. the datum. All our, our dispositions to report on our, uh, in a in a world, all oh, that's that's a datum, but what what we what the illusionist says is that those uh, reports are not based on veridical introspections of real phenomenal properties. Yeah, I guess I, I think it's it's complicated. I, I think that the introspection can be veridical about the phenomenal states without being veridical about whether they are accurate representations of anything or not. So it's it's veridical that I'm having the experience, but oh. non-veridical about the origin of that or the nature of the underlying nature of that experience. I'm I'm look as intentional objects. I'm quite happy with qualia as intentional objects, the objects of my representations, of my judgments, of my beliefs. Yes, absolutely. That's the illusionist claim. The illusionist claim is that that's all they are. Right, and I want to claim that they are that plus they have this subjective, private, ineffable quality to them that that's part of how we represent yeah. them to ourselves yes that we okay. we represent them as we, we represent ourselves as having this 
Cartesian theory. But we're not, and, and, and that representation, I think, is we actually have, and this is, this is I think, the, the real crux of our disagreement is these, like, this private, ineffable, subjective world where I think that we do have that. I know that it's, I know that it can't be proven, and I know that um, folks will, will marshal Occam's razor to say, well, if we can't prove it, then it doesn't do anything. I mean, I think we'll get in a second into, like, maybe we can prove it through the ai stuff eventually or at least prove it in a negative sense but i mean i think that at least for for folks at home who are trying to sort of follow along where we really genuinely disagree i think it's that i don't think that it's false that we have these private ineffable subjective experiences uh, and it seems like you think that that's that's a representation but not a representation of anything that's actually happening is uh, that fair that that's I, I, I think that's right. Though we need to be careful. Okay. I'm, I, it's it's hard in a conversation to to exactly pin down sure. this, whether we're quite using. I, I, some things you say sound very close to what I want to say, and some things you say. <laughs> I, I, the nature I, of this game, I find, <laughs> it's horse, horseshoe theory for consciousness. It all circles I mean, back I around think, on itself. I think if you're if you're if you're inclined to say that that. Look, let's distinguish two kinds of subjectivity. This might help, possibly. Okay. Okay, so one is this. We have all kinds of mechanisms, you know, the sort of things that cognitive science and neuroscientists can study that involve neurons, you know, linked up in networks doing stuff, okay? And what these introspective mechanisms do is they detect what's happening in our brains, okay? So it Mm -hmm. detects, you know, perceptual processes, detects when I'm having... Uh, a certain kind of perceptual experience, okay? And it gives me the ability to react not just to the world, but also to my experience of the world, okay? So I can not just react to the, the pain, but also to my experience of the pain. I can say I didn't like, you know, that experience, right? As well as saying I didn't like the 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 um, uh, what the dentist was doing. I didn't like. I could I could reflect on the experience itself and conceptualize it and talk about it and so on. I can tell you what is going on in my mind okay uh-huh. what what thoughts i'm having what experiences i'm having so it gives me a kind of way of sort of of not just reacting to the world but also reacting to my reactions to the world okay so it makes me a sort of meta level reactor now and this is a, this gives me a sort of subjectivity okay it makes my own mental processes some an object for me okay, okay. which is a sort of you know, a, a meta, a metacognitive kind of system of some sort. Oh, oh yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So now I have a kind of inner world. I have a. I can sort of, as it were, look in metaphorically, sort of look inwards and tell you what's happening in here, as well as yeah. looking outwards and telling you what's happening out there. Illusionists have no problem with all this. In fact, they think it's absolutely key to understanding consciousness. And it's probably going to be replicable in AI, right? That that's the kind uh, of metacognition that you can certainly build into an AI. Absolutely. Now, this is what I call this is what I call introspective. Where introspection is meant to be like a kind of the opposite of, I guess. Ex, extroception, you know, perception, perception of the world right. out there. This is introspection, looking inwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's 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 conceptualized in terms of mechanisms, you know, neural mechanisms, okay, uh, and representations and the use of those mechan- uh, representations. So there's nothing deeply mysterious about this. this is all part of the, the easy problems, mm-hmm. or, right? Or explaining all this. No need to mention. Uh, uh, Qualia or whatever. Although what we might want to mention as part of that story is that having these mechanisms leads us to judge that we have 
qualia and an internal world. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, the other sort uh, is... Oh, sorry, let me just, let me just mention... phenomenal world, sorry. Oh, no, I just want to just, want to just mention, uh, this is a, a position that I'm very sympathetic to. I teach yeah. a paper in my AI class that talks about metacognition and AI. And I do yeah. think that, like, there may be a, a, a spot where that and what I'm talking about do meet up functionally and maybe more than functionally. Right. But, yeah, go ahead. Now, the other sort is what I call intrinsic subjectivity. And the idea here is that being in certain brain states and perceptual states say whatever is just intrinsically like something just uh, not because you have some sort of mechanism that is detecting those states uh but just because just in somehow being in that state just in virtue of it being the state it is is somehow like something for the system that <laughs> hang on let me say that again uh mm-hmm. The idea is that being in a certain physical state like that is just intrinsically like something for the system itself. Okay. Okay. I buy now, that. Yeah. Now that's now. Wait a minute, but that's a very different notion of subjectivity. There's no mention there of mechanisms, of introspective mechanisms. Anything mm-hmm. at all could, be, could have a, a, a subjective life in that sense. You could imagine a rock. You could imagine that it's like something for the rock. Right, and this is why you you said before the the, the discussion before we get started the, the options are your view or panpsychism, right? Well, we're coming. Yeah, we kind This is the notion that's in play in panpsychism. The idea is that it's like something to be an electron. It's like it's somehow it's just a fundamental is everywhere feature of the physical world that some some things, perhaps all things, have this inner life. It doesn't depend on any mechanism. Okay. Now, my view is that. Intrinsic subjectivity, that's the second sort, is an illusion created by introspective subjectivity. That's the mm-hmm. first sort. Mm-hmm. That creatures with this complex kind, highly complex kind of introspective subjectivity tend to think of themselves as being intrinsically subject. Having, a, uh, having, uh, having an intrinsically, uh, uh, intrinsic subjectivity. Sorry, I'm getting my words yeah, I think that's so well they, put. They start to think of consciousness as being this, just this inner kind of glow, that it, what it's like to be them. And they can somehow separate out this glow, this essence of subjectivity, from all the, the processes or whatever that are going on in them. They, somehow it seems, precisely because you've been asked, remember we started with this distinction between the easy problem and the hard problem. And what we were asked to do then was to precisely to separate out this essence this glow from all the other stuff so of course once you start conceptualizing it this way you you think that this is something different and there's something about introspective subjectivity that makes it easy for us to do that and once you've done that then you get this problem how does this stuff fit into the world (laughs) uh and one way to go is to say well maybe everything has it maybe everything in the world has this so it's not kind of surprising that we have it maybe electrons have it and maybe our consciousness is just a sort of sum of all the uh, uh, the intrinsic subjectivities of all the little parts, all the little elements that make us up, um, microparticles mm-hmm. that make us up. And yeah. yeah, that would sort of, if you want to take intrinsic subjectivity seriously, I think that's actually uh, a kind of reasonable way to go because it would kind of seem arbitrary to say, well, look, some physical things have this inner life, like our brains do, because, hey, we're special, right? But I mean, rocks don't have it, and you know, trees don't have it because they're just like rocks and trees. And we're 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 
Uh, well, no, if you're not linking this, if you're not linking this to the specific mechanisms of introspective subjectivity, and there's no reason why you should, because it's just, it doesn't depend on them according to this, uh, then, you know, why restrict it to us? Why think that it only, it would be very peculiar if it only went along with introspective subjectivity, which itself, I think, can offer an explanation of why we have these intuitions. I think that's, yeah, that's very well put. The same paper that I was referencing, the Sloman one, actually makes a similar argument that, like, AI with sufficiently advanced metacognition will have the same weird questions that human philosophers have about, am I conscious, what are my internal states, as as an as an impact from having that that uh, those higher level capacities bingo mm-hmm. yeah. i mean I, yeah i think this is a really good argument and i i th- i think it is a a ro- really robust challenge to the realist position and it's um you know as a even though i'm still sympathetic to the other view i'm not strongly sympathetic to panpsychism like the closest i get with panpsychism would be something like a Spinozan kind of panpsychism where, or um, Wilbur Ro- uh, Ross, I think, not Wilbur Ross, um, Ken Wilbur, excuse me, uh, does some stuff about the inner side versus the external side and that all phenomenon have both an inner and an external world to them. Um, I, But I mean, I, I think that we it is important that we talk about phenomenal consciousness as the localized experience that it seems to be, that like, you know, we individuals are having something that is different than what a rock is having, right? I think us us going in that direction is as problematic as like we're all the same as thermostats, uh, kind of that that kind of overly simplified version of um, your perspective. So, so so again, I'm I'm keen to I guess if I want to retain my sense of phenomenal consciousness, I think you're right that the project is to ex- to address this intrinsic thing and i think reject this intrinsic account in favor of something yes. else and see if i can i can um and push so, it that way yeah and so this is this is essentially the illusion and this is why I, I coined the term illusionism because i wanted to stress the positive aspect of the program the negative aspect of the program is eliminating the conception of intra, of uh, intrinsic subjectivity the positive aspect is building up an account of introspective subjectivity such that we see that it kind of you know, it captures all that we want, all that we, uh, it, it gives us all that we really need. And, yeah. that, and, and these are both, you know, the first part is a sort of uh, kind of more easy, uh, the, the easier part of them. building up the positive account is a, is, a, is a long, long research project. That's fair. And I mean, I'm still very curious about how that um, introspective subjectivity actually feels so i mean like let's get back to i guess the ai stuff a little bit so on your view if i have an ai that passes a sufficiently advanced turing test right set it up in however you feel so that like you really are very confident that this entity is acting functionally like us in very robust ways would you then say that 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 is a conscious entity and that we should ascribe it rights and things i i I think that would be a prudential thing to do yes i Um, I certainly agree it would be a prudential thing to do right if an alien if an alien robot shows up we should give it rights for sure Uh, would it be conclusive not absolutely because we might discover that it's doing it in ways that are completely different to the ways in which we are doing it it might not i mean it could Mm -hmm. 
it could in principle be some sort of giant lookup table, you know, where it's just getting canvas sponsors. To, to, now, that's not impossible. And I take it that if it was doing it that way, then we would say, well, it doesn't have the right sort of introspective subjectivity. It isn't tracking its own internal states in the way that we do. It isn't constructing this kind of image of its own inner life that we do. It isn't generating this, it isn't undergoing this kind of illusion of its own inner life that, that we do, because it doesn't have all those mechanisms of introspective subjectivity. And we couldn't just read that off from its overt behavior. We'd have to have a look at what was going on inside it. So just the overt behavior wouldn't guarantee, but that would be such a, Given the you know the sort of computational complexity right, of doing exactly. it, yeah. it, it's so massively unlikely that it was doing it in that way. That one would argue all, physically impossible. But yeah, I it, agree. It, it, could, it could very well. I mean, it probably take you know. I don't know they, they, I, I'm sympathetic they, to Dennett's view that it would take a machine larger than the universe, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, to all intents and purposes, uh, it, it should be our default. More than our default. yeah, it should yeah. It's 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 extraordinarily unlikely that it's not. I mean, so so let's just so say it is. okay. So you would say that for something to be a matter of ethical concern, right? We'll talk. We'll, let's apply this in ethics a little bit here, right? It mm-hmm. has to have the a, a sufficiently similar uh, illusion, right? Or it has to have sufficiently similar um, introspective subjectivity to us in its processing systems in order to qualify even though that that sort of those systems are in a sense just really complex functional systems is that is that right uh in order for i guess for it to for for us to regard it as um uh on a par with ourselves yes but i don't i'm not sure that that this uh subjectivity in either sense is is the only determinant of sort of ethical uh concern sure Uh, it might not be right you could but it's 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 hard to come up with an ethical framework that doesn't rely on you know does it suffer as one of the key pillars i think i I, should be an element of it but i mean Mm. i would i'm destroying a a beautiful landscape seems to me unethical um uh okay so this gets us into the value question okay great we might want to say that creatures that are pretty simple creatures that maybe don't have complex introspective abilities, but that still have preferences and, you know, that can be, uh, uh, that, uh, that don't want this particular kind of, of uh, 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 treatment, mm-hmm. that, react, that react aversively to it, you might say, well, mm-hmm. you know, don't do it then. You know? um, uh, I don't know. I, I, but to, yes, if you think that, 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 that suffering in the, in the kind of human senses is uh is 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 important and i think it is important um then yes that's to be cashed out in these introspective terms okay and it seems i mean it seems to me from all of this that like and this is something that ai people are still wrestling with too many people much smarter than than me i feel like they call it the grounding problem with things like language and meaning i I mean Uh, maybe i'm curious your thoughts about this my my takeaway on a lot like uh, there's this really scary question that we're hurtling towards, which is, are we going to ever be able to test whether AI has true consciousness or robust consciousness in some kind of sense? And I, I'm at this point, I lean towards the answer that no, we're never going to be able to test it. We're only going to be able to test uh, externally observable features of the behavior. And as I think we've said a couple of times All over right. the course of this, that's never going to be sufficient to guarantee either positive or negative that there is that internal world. 
Right. Well, I, or, or I don't. Yeah. Well, I, I, we, we can. We, there'll be ways and non-invasive ways, I guess, of investigating what's happening inside them, um, which is. I wonder though if those those methods will actually be able like if we have a sufficiently advanced metacognitive AI system mm -hmm. uh, that that is built out of a learning machine right that isn't something that we mm -hmm. programmed the good old fashioned way there's some arguments mm -hmm. that we won't actually be able to understand it won't be able to give us an explanation of how it did what it did much like I might not be able to give you an explanation of how I got to some of my conclusions. Well, look, there's, there are going to be all sorts of gray areas where we have all kinds of different kinds of minds, mm -hmm. uh, many of them very different from ours, perhaps with very different introspective abilities. And what do we say about them? Well, this is a problem we're going to have to we're going to have to think about this, and we're going to probably have to think about it pragmatically. What when the what, the wrong way to address this is to kind of reflect on our own minds, distill out some essence of the sort of value making subject subjective feel of our experience and the kind of the intrinsic meaning of our thoughts which mm -hmm. is somehow come somehow an added extra above all of the information processing or whatever that's going on and then ask ourselves but does that creature have this added extra now that's mm -hmm. a really bad way of us of dealing with the question because it's <laughs> there are no facts you can find out about the creature that will help you answer it I agree, uh, that it's, I agree that it's a, t a sucky way to have to deal with it, but I, I don't know if it's an avoidable way to have to address this problem. I, uh, I, I think, I, well, it's, it's, it's not even a way to address it. It's a way to... It, it may not be, but there may not be a better one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, 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 I think there must be better ones because, I mean, this is this is such a sort of... For one thing, it's a... It's a, it's a a very anthropocentric way of looking at this. Like, sure. uh, how am I going to sort of deal with all these weird and wonderful kinds of minds we may create or may encounter in the future? Well, I'll tell you what, let's start by just introspecting, <laughs> <laughs> establishing what's special about us, as, as it seems to us from our own. It's a little speciesistic, I'll give you that. And then ask, do they have that? Well, that that's fair. Terrible way of approaching it. It's a sort of a essentialism. Yeah. It's the parochialism it's uh no let's try and let's what's special look i think this is one of the one thing i didn't i still haven't done that thing of running through the different positions on on um uh, on consciousness right from the beginning when i wrote my text we'll, 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 we'll link we'll link your summary paper in the um in the show notes for folks who want to go read um, um uh and one of the one of the the one of the positions that is, is quite tempting to to some realists is to say that, that is to be a, an epiphenomenalist about the Ugh, phenomenon. No. Because <laughs> the question is how, well, the trouble is the phenomenal understood as something over and above all these information processing, whatever, doesn't seem to have any effects because we don't find things happening in the brain uh, without some perfectly uh, evident cause in the brain. It doesn't seem mm -hmm. that the, the feel, the pain itself, you know, makes neurons fire that wouldn't have fired otherwise. What makes them fire is the, 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 the preceding neural activity. So it doesn't seem to do anything. And now this actually, you know, it does help a little bit in finding, in helping you to be a realist because you can say, well, look, this stuff doesn't really, you know, it, Nah, it, I'm not even remotely interested. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right that it is an alternative for some, but I, I think it's, well, it I doesn't think, make any sense to me. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I think that, well, I think this is what pushes a person towards illusionism because uh -huh. you see that the attempts to kind of spell out realism in a way that's 
you know, compatible with what we know about, you know, what, with what we know about the rest of the physical world, does force you into mm-hmm. something like hyperphenomenalism or something like panpsychism or interactionism, which is it's equally problematic, if not more problematic. Uh, and you know, it's it's the unpalatableness <laughs> of the alternatives that make illusionism look like an interesting option. I'm just going to do wait, like Sextus and suspend all judgment. It's fine. You're going to do so. <laughs> just just going to go go full uh, Peronian skeptic on this one. Well, I think <laughs> I, I I'm not even I don't even really want to to you know, sort of, uh, close down those options. I just want to say, well, look, there's no, another option which has been relatively neglected, and it, people are focused on the negative part of the illusionist project the mm-hmm. denial of, of intrinsic subjectivity what about let's look at the positive let's try and f- pursue the positive project of building mm-hmm. up an account of the introspective subjectivity and of showing why that tempts us so you know, so strongly to adopt this kind of of, of of image of ourselves the cartesian theater image and if we as we if, if we start to build up that picture and to understand why it's so compelling then i think um Perhaps our inclination to trust the picture would would decline if we see that we would have this picture anyway, even if it weren't veridical. Yeah, that's sort of a debunking, a debunking argument. Sure, uh, I get that. Um, let me. There's one more question I wanted to ask about the AI, and then I want to talk about value before we run out of time. <laughs> um, if we fail completely to build a natural language machine, for example, would <laughs> that count as some evidence either for or against your position, do you think? Well, I think language is very important in the uh, development of our sense of, uh, of, of uh, in, uh, in developing our, our conception of consciousness. I don't think there's any likelihood that we we won't develop one. I mean, nature developed one. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's certainly possible to do it in principle. I Why would... If we don't, I think if we, if we look, I think, and this is something that um, Daniel Dennett talks a lot about, the idea that that our sense of introspective subjectivity is derived from need to communicate with other people, with our need to, to, to tell other people what is happening with us, and also to, to, to censor what we tell other people. We need to communicate some of what's going on in here to other people, but we also need... Mm-hmm. to not tell everything it's no good just having some sort of automatic feed out uh, f- uh, report uh, function that whatever's happening i just report it immediately i need to sort of stand back a little bit and filter and, and reflect on what's happening to me and how much i want to tell other people it's a sort of strategic thing and creating this kind of filter this kind of internal user interface on our own minds so that we can reflect on what's happening and decide what we're going to report that's it's from that that we build up the sense of having a, 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 a an inner world, a Cartesian theater. And so communication and language are, are crucial to this sort of develop, um, this, this, this evolutionary picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it might be, uh, when I say evolutionary, there, that might be a process of cultural evolution. Um, so I think that communication is, is probably crucial to it. I'm not sure that you would uh, naturally get this sort of thing occurring in creatures that didn't communicate. But whether it has to be a natural language system just like ours, um, hmm. I mean, there might be special features of human language that are, that are peculiar and idiosyncratic. I, I don't know, um, but I don't see that. Um, 
I mean, AIs might find ways of, we might uh, induce them to develop ways of, of communicating with each other that are rather different from the ways that we communicate. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, might- I'm not saying that the AIs can't communicate. I'm curious if, like, if there's something about that introspective subjectivity that is an essential component for engaging in very robust natural language that, that it would be difficult to mimic it effectively with no, a uh, I, I simple manipulator. It's the other way around. I think it's that 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 language actually enables us to develop the picture. I don't think we need the picture in place before language. Mm. I suspect the language came first okay. and drove the picture. Actually, it was because we needed to, because we needed to tell other people, yeah, what's going on in, in here and conceal some aspects of what's going on in here that we started to develop the idea that there was something sure. in that mysterious sense going on in here. That's fair. Okay. Um. So the last thing I want to ask this was something that that uh. A cohort of mine over at Rutgers had a question about when when he was studying your papers. Um, you were talking earlier about value, and and you I, I think you I've mentioned that you are a realist about value. How does that sort of line up with this uh, illusionist view? I don't. I mean, I, I believe it can, but I was curious if you could lay that out for folks. Did, did I say that I was a realist? Maybe about maybe that? you didn't say that. Maybe I maybe I inferred <laughs> that from your talk of trees and and pretty things. Oh right, yes. Well. Mm. Yeah, maybe that. I, that's, I'm an agnostic, I think. Um, okay. I, mean, I think it's. I don't think. Uh, I think you can be a a, 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 a realist about value and uh, be an illusionist. My friend Francois Camara has just written a, a really interesting paper in which he addresses this issue. You know, what sort of normative? What are the normative implications of mm-hmm. uh, illusionism? Uh, is it the case that value is rooted in? phenomenality and the phenomenal quality of our experience is that the the ground of value or at least a gr- important ground of value for human beings um uh, not just for human beings for all of them and if so what are the implications of illusionism does mm-hmm. it have revisionary revisionary ethical consequences i and he explores a range of possibilities and he shows that, that, that many different um uh, ways this can pan out depending upon uh your your, uh, your other beliefs mm-hmm. it could have depending on uh, how you how you spell things out and it could not have i think it's a it's a it's not illusionism itself is not specific on any of these these consequences um i'm inclined myself to say that the that the ground of value is that what we ordinarily describe as you know, suffering and pleasure and so on these yes these do have a value but that doesn't build in this phenomenal conception of suffering these we, we just identified these states uh demonstratively you know, that state that one there that i was in that's bad that state that, that the person over there is in that's a good state you know we just identify these as sort of ostensibly you know, by, by pointing to them and um, we are at an everyday level we all know what these states are and you know these are these are good and bad uh we don't build into that identification of them a concept the, the conception of intrinsic subjectivity that comes from a bit more philosophical reflection on mm-hmm. what's going on and building in a sort of Cartesian conception of what's happening in those situations. And mm-hmm. once you present people with that conception, then it's very natural for them to say, ah, oh, yes, and what's really bad about that state was the intrinsic awfulness of it, this sort of essence of awfulness that the, situa- that, that, that the state had. Yes, it's easy to get them to do that, but I don't think that's relevant to uh, the intuitions about badness. 
I think they come before that pre-theoretically. Just that mm -hmm. kind of thing is bad, whatever it is. And it doesn't, it, there doesn't, there needn't be a commitment to it being a kind of intrinsic awfulness. And so you could then bring in the, uh, the illusionist scan as an alternative way of explicating what's happening in those situations, mm -hmm. uh, which, so they're both just de um, derivative ways of, they're just ways of explicating what's happening in these situations. It's the situations themselves, whatever they are, that are the ground of, of, of value. Yeah, I think I, I think I buy that. It seems to me that like you could still talk about the value of entities that have what you're describing in terms of subjectivity versus intrinsic subjectivity. Mm -hmm. um, so, great. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think the Cartesian conception is actually built into our into our ethical intuitions in that way. Though it can, once you've once you've gone down that road, once it's been introduced to you and you've been sort of infected with this <laughs> virus, <laughs> then it's natural to rethink it all in that way. And I think philosophers do that. But uh, that's, again, part of the illusionist program. I mean, I think it can play a role, potentially, that I think that, like, um, you know, if you go too far down a behavioralist track, that you can start to lose sense of some of the, some kinds of value, that you have trouble making sense even of what you would call introspective subjectivity and the value of that. A, a crude behaviorism, certainly one that just mm -hmm. concentrates traits on input output but you need to take account of a lot more than that you need to take account of of you know, what's happening inside of course in, in, in the spatial sense but also of the whole mm -hmm. pattern of interaction with other people the whole social mm -hmm. dimension of this and i think you know just sort of narrow kind of skinnerian kind of input output the picture is just you know it's just taking mm -hmm. a tiny tiny slice of the whole complex interaction that makes the situations good and bad Fair enough. I mean, I think we've we've done some. We, this has been this has been really great. Before we get to making the void livable, uh, are there sort of things that you would point people towards if they wanted to do more reading? And I can put some some of these in the show notes. Oh, uh, right. Well, or any final a, thoughts maybe on this uh, topic? They could certainly have a look at my website where there are some links. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a volume. It was a, a double issue of. The Journal of Consciousness Studies from a couple of years ago, which was later issued as a book under the title mm -hmm. Illusions and as a Theory of Consciousness. And that has a target article by myself, but also um, a bunch of responses from both friends and foes of illusionism. Yeah, and there's some good uh, responses in there. There are some good responses. And I think it gives you a good sense of, uh, of the debate, uh, uh, whichever side you, you're on. So that's a, probably a good a good place to have a uh, um, to start, and also, of course, I must mention Daniel Dennett's work, which has been a huge influence on me. Um, Consciousness explained, mm -hmm. sweet, uh, sweet dreams. I think he's 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 really got his finger on the pulse of a lot of things here, and uh, that's great. All right, so let's uh, let's do uh, making the void livable, and uh, we can re recapture everyone who we maybe lost over the course of some of that. <laughs> Uh, so you had a suggestion for making the void livable, I think, some uh, old old timey British comedy. Old timey British comedy. I think what makes the void livable is humor. I think mm -hmm. uh, humor. It's it's hard to fight with people that that, that you laugh with. Um, but I, I don't like humor that's cruel. Humor mm -hmm. that involves mockery. And uh, yes, some people deserve mocking, and uh, some people in power. We should laugh at them and mock them. But at the same time, that brings in a political concerns, which are very important. I don't deny their place. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just want to 
just laugh <laughs> uh, in a in a open, engaging, mm-hmm. non-threatening uh, kind of way. And uh, for that, I think I, I, I like absurdist, surrealist humor, humor that laughs not at particular people, but I guess at our condition, mm-hmm. at the general absurdity of life. I, I suppose the void itself. That's, that's and, what we're here for. <laughs> as and I think that's that's the way to make the void livable is to, is to laugh at it. And I used to, uh, when I was younger, I used to like Monty Python. I don't think their work has perhaps dated too well. Some of it is aged poorly, for sure. I think some of the they were white middle class men of that period, and uh, yeah, I mean the spirit of the humour I like, but I, I I find some of it pretty hard to watch. So I would kind of go back actually to a previous generation. Um, I am old, but not this old. Um, this mm-hmm. they were my, my father's favourite comedians in the 1950s, the Goons. I guess people will know Peter Sellers, uh, Spike mm-hmm. Milligan, uh, sure. Harry Seacombe. Now, these, these were guys, uh, Seacombe and uh, Milligan, they'd fought in the war and they'd had some pretty bad experiences in the war. And Milligan himself was a, had a lifelong uh, battle with depression. So these guys had looked into the, the void quite a bit. And their response was to kind of sort of blow raspberries at it. And just, it's, a lot of it is pure silliness. I think it's dated better than the Python. They were a big influence on Python. I think it's dated better than that, than precisely because they are less concerned with, uh, uh, with, with, with uh, satirizing particular mores. And less, they, they, they were concerned with uh, they weren't. They, they were not appealing. I think to any particular class, any particular social group, or whatever. They were just expressing their sense of how strange and ridiculous and uh, absurd the world was. And they're, they're like schoolboys. They're like uh, they're, they're clowns. This, this clownishness. This just ability to, you know, look at the world in all its horror and just laugh at it. Mm-hmm. That's what. I and so much of the humor, I mean, of course, there are data parts of it, but so much of the humor is referring back to the war and mm-hmm. it's taking these horrific situations, wartime situations, and just treating them as, as absurd, as surreal, as uh, treating the war as if it were a, a, a farce. Mm hmm. Any more I think like that, uh, uh, duck soup kind of stuff, a little bit. Exactly. I think the Mark, I think I think the Marx Brothers are a very good. Uh, Though some of their stuff has also not aged very well. Uh, of course, not. I mean, nothing ages very well, I suppose. Sure. But I think I think the goons actually age because precisely because it's so silly. Because there, mm-hmm. it's there's a bunch of, of of characters, and of course they were geniuses. I mean, Sellers was a was a was a um, uh, as a man he had many faults, but as a as an actor as an uh, he, he was he was a genius. Uh, Milligan was a creative comic genius, and together they produced this kind of chemistry. They obviously enjoyed being in each other's company. They enjoyed sort of they 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 continually break away from the script and improvise and just uh, uh, play around. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just playing, and uh, mm-hmm. it's not taking things seriously. And I that's think that's great. the only way we can deal with the the huge seriousness of life around us, and that's. I mean, humor is a kind of escape, I suppose, but it's also a, a psychological safety valve, I think. It's... Mm-hmm. I totally agree. So I, 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 I've I, been listening a little bit to the goons, and uh, I would encourage 
people to people to try. I think. I wonder if we can find it on YouTube or something. There's there, there's quite a lot of the goons on YouTube. Oh, that's good. Um, uh, I actually found a goon radio station that played continuous goons, but it seems to have gone off the air. So. Are you a Fireside Theater kind of person as well? Uh, I saw your what? Fireside Theater, Fireside Theater, I think it's called. My father tried uh, to get me to listen to this back in the day, and it didn't it didn't stick with me. It was a bit of a like absurdist political. It's a little more political, I suppose. Um, I don't know that. I, I, is that oh, is that an American an, show? American show, yeah. Um, um, I'll see if I can pass good. some of it along to you. Oh, I like I like that. I think you um, might like it. I no, I, absolutely. I like to hear that. All right. Um, well, we should we should wrap up, but uh, I really appreciate you coming and chatting. Do you want to let folks know where they can find uh, your materials? Uh, my website is is the best place to to start. Uh, it's just Keith Frank, keithfrankish.com. Great. We'll get that in the One show word. notes as well. Um, well, thanks so much, Keith. This has been a lot of fun, and I imagine we'll have some questions, and uh, I will be messaging you with follow-ups, I, I, I believe. So uh, thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope hope we sort of managed to hack a kind of path through this through this complex terror trigger. <laughs> I think I think it was a fun ride. I imagine that we probably lost a few people at a few points, but uh, apologies to everyone. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard to do this stuff slow. Well, I enjoyed it anyways, and I hope others did too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Somewhere between the Andes Mountains and Berlin is a place called London. And it's hell there. <laughs> that brief story was for those who have other things to do. I want to give an extra special thanks to all our listeners and patrons for being so very patient this last month. I promise I will work hard to make sure a gap like that never happens again. Very special thanks to our top patrons, Dave Maslich, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, the person who controls the spice controls the void, Volunteer with Camp Quest this summer. CampQuest.org. Philosophy Book Club will live again. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Thank you all so very much. If you would like more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to my other show, Philosophers in Space. Also, come join in the Philosophers in Space Facebook group. I promise you won't regret it. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, now and forever, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.